All right. Welcome back, listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. We are going to be discussing today the new course cinema classic, Cheryl Dunye's seminal 1996 feature, The Watermelon Woman. Her name, The Watermelon Woman. That's right, Watermelon Woman. Is Watermelon Woman her first name, her last name, or is it her whole name? I don't know, but Girlfriend has it going on, and I think I've figured out what my project's gonna be on. So The Watermelon Woman is a film within a film as Cheryl, Donye starring as herself in the movie, is a 25-year-old black lesbian and amateur filmmaker on a documentary task to uncover the identity of a 1930s black actress dubbed as The Watermelon Woman. In her search for this elusive actress, Cheryl also faces her turbulent friendship with Tamara. Did I say that right? Tamara. I'm so sorry. Her turbulent friendship with Tamara, played by Valerie Walker, and her budding romance with Diana, played by Go Fish star Guinevere Turner. Cheryl is met with a series of dead ends as her search for the watermelon woman further emphasizes the lack of representation to both black people in film and queer black women in film. Cheryl Dunye's future debut, The Watermelon Woman, was a landmark new queer cinema film because it was the first film by an, black, by an out black lesbian and also the first to depict the black lesbian experience. In a field so heavily dominated by cis white men and films made to pander to their gaze, Dunye's film reclaims the identity and body of the black queer woman from a history and society that, continu- that continually oppresses it. And so my thoughts on... Uh, the film is I love this film. Uh, it was the first um, movie, the, the first black lesbian film that I watched um, during my undergrad year at college, and I was completely blown away by it. And it's also important to note that, you know, as I was saying earlier, the social and political message that um, Watermelon Woman has, like most new queer cinema films had at the time, um, that this film is actually also really funny and romantic. There's a lot of comedic moments um, from... Yvette, played by Kat Robertson, singing Minnie Ripperton's Loving You, very off-key um, in this karaoke scene, which was hilarious. And another scene where Dunye is at this place called the Center for Lesbian Info and Technology, and the acronym is CLIT. And so, you know, just those scenes kind of exemplify this comedic and um, this comedic tone to the watermelon woman that I just absolutely love. And, you know, there's also the intermixing style that we see in The Watermelon Woman that is amazing. And, you know, we have a documentary style, the talking head style that's in Watermelon Woman that, you know, you see a lot throughout Cheryl Dunye's films. She tends to implement this documentary element throughout all her films. You know, there's Owls, there's um, her confessional essay with Janine, Vanilla Sex. You know, she really likes this kind of documentary element. And, you know... With all the different styles, you also have like trans- transitional footage of Cheryl dancing on the roof. Um, you have this beautifully shot sex scene, which was very cinematic in my opinion. Um, you know, throughout all the styles, it really exemplifies Dunye as a filmmaker. Um, I also love how Dunye made an entire film about a made-up actress just to emphasize the way film history overlooks people of color and how there needs to be a greater push for diversity and representation. Yeah, thank you, Lena. Um, definitely agree with all you've said. So 
this um, this year was the first time that I've seen the watermelon woman because I hadn't heard of it before, sadly. But I was so happy to find it because I've seen it three times so far this year, and it's been within like a less than a six month span. That's just how much I love it. Um, but yeah, you know, just going to your last statement about really the creation behind the watermelon woman, you know, I like to look at the end of the film and what Denye states. And she says, sometimes you have to make your own history. The watermelon woman is fiction. And Denye knows that women like the fictional watermelon woman existed. They have existed throughout history. And however, a lot of that history that is given to us is from a cishet white male authority. So women like the watermelon woman who existed who have that queer identity, they weren't included in the history that were taught. So just because the watermelon woman is fictional doesn't mean her story isn't true. And so I, I really love that Denny created such a personal story and a fictional doc out of this narrative. And it, like you were saying, it really is seriously funny. The watermelon mm-hmm. woman is a new course on the film, but it's funnier than most of them. And it's still transgressive. One of my favorite scenes is such a commentary on a white, non-queer authority and gatekeeping of history. And the inclusion of such commentary was so incredibly transgressive, as well as the explicit sex scene between Dunye's character and Guinevere Turner's character. Throughout her work, Dunye has commented on relationships between both white and black queer women, and she provides such a succinct interrogation of those relationships and their effects on black queer women. I love this film for those reasons and for the voice to black queer women that Denny provided that was severely overlooked at this time and throughout history. And so by creating the watermelon woman, Denny created something revolutionary. Yes. And, you know, um, going back on that scene where you were talking about, uh, you know, a, a white authority, um, in the film, one of those scenes is that that's actually the very first opening scene that we see, right? Yeah, um, I know. And it's a, so we open up the film with a, we're at the wedding. And what's interesting is that this is a wedding. Um, it's an interracial wedding. It's a wedding between a black man and a white woman. And you have Cheryl and Tamara, they're the video crew. They're kind of um, taking footage of everyone and the event. And what's really interesting about this opening, which I think really sets the tone or sets what Cheryl is really critiquing throughout the entirety of this film, is we have this white photographer who basically just comes in in front of Cheryl's shot, um, who Cheryl's, you know, she's getting a B-roll shot of the family all together. And you have this white photographer, he comes in um, in front of her and takes the lead and you know, he's just like ordering everyone around. And then Cheryl um, starts screaming. She's like, we're working with the family right now. Can't you see? And she's like, don't you see the video equipment? Why don't you just like wait your turn? And the photographer kind of stumbles like, oh, okay. And then, you know, it's like, I I felt like this scene really was a critique again about how, you know, we have white cis um, heterosexual men coming in to, you know, the queer space coming to, to take away queer authority and black authority in the art scene. I don't know if you can articulate that better for me, Nick. 
Yeah, no, um, I completely agree. You know, I thought that this opening was the best way to establish exactly what themes Denier explores during this film. You know, it's like for throughout history, you know, we've had white cishet men who have dominated what stories are told, you know, and even telling the stories of people who, you know, they don't identify as, you know, we've had so many films that are told by white cishet men that are about queer women, about black queer women, about communities that they don't represent and who they can't authentically tell those stories. We have that issue. And we also have this issue where all the history that we're taught is dominated and it's completely taken over by a white cishet authoritative voice. And I just, I loved how Dunye in this opening shot, you know, she tells him to back down. You know, it's like, uh uh-uh, no, you're not telling the story. I'm telling the story. I'm making that perfectly clear that this is my story to tell. No one's going to get in the way of that. And, you know, the time of white cishet men telling our stories is over because I'm reclaiming that. I'm reclaiming this identity. And, you know, knowing that at the start of this film, we know that the rest of the film is going to follow that. That type of in-your-face, transgressive, this is my identity. This is who I am. This is the story I'm going to tell and no one's going to get in the way of it. And I, I loved that that is what established the opening of this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it really also, it's establishing how, you know, white voices have suppressed black voices, you know, especially suppressing black women um, in the industry and in society in general, which leads us to our next scene where we get Denier who sits in front of the camera and, you know, she's putting on her lav mic and you can hear the ruffles of her shirt. Um, But, you know, as she's talking to the camera, she's talking about being this being a filmmaker and she's kind of figuring out what she wants to make a film about. And she knows that she wants to make a film about black women because their stories are never told. Hence, uh, this is the point of Watermelon Woman, because she finds this um, old 1930s uh, movie called Plantation Memories, where we have this black actress who's dubbed as the Watermelon Woman. And, you know, and Cheryl is so enamored by this actress and she's so frustrated that she's not even given her credit in this film not even given of her full name for her wonderful performance in this film but is just dubbed as this as a watermelon woman which has you know a racially a racist charge connotation right mm-hmm. yeah and you know it definitely speaks to what we've been discussing what she establishes in our first scene and she really explains the impetus of, you know, this fictional project, this movie within a movie. And, you know, we, we've seen these types of documentarian confessionals throughout her work. You mentioned that earlier, you know, with Al's and Janine and Vanilla Sex and all of her shorts that came before The Watermelon Woman. And so, you know, I love that aspect to her work, these confessionals, but I especially... Mm-hmm loved it in the watermelon woman you know and we see these confessionals of her tracing her path through creating this documentary on the watermelon woman we see that throughout this film and you know i 
these were some of my favorite scenes. You know, this scene in particular, I loved it because, you know, we really get to see Dunya shine through. You know, it's like it really works for this narrative because of this documentary within a movie. But I've never seen someone in these types of interviews that really just endears an audience to the character. Mm -hmm. You know, she's there's just so much charisma that she has and just, you know, it really makes you invested in finding this journey. And I really felt like the way that she shot this, the style that she has, and I would really definitely say it's a very auteur type of style to her filmmaking that I thought worked just perfectly with the watermelon woman. Mm-hmm. I agree. I also feel like having this style um, brings a deeper connection with her in the audience. And I also think it reinforces this point that she's trying to make about having authority in front of the camera and behind the camera as a black queer woman. Yeah, exactly. You know, so far we've had these really documentarian styles, like very like handheld camera styles with her and her interview as well as at the wedding. And so then we move into the next setting where she works at a video store that she mentions and it's her and Tamara and the the style of the film definitely changes. It's definitely more of a um, less documentary style type of film. And so we really get to be introduced more to her relationship with Tamara. That's a little bit more fraught because Tamara is really questioning Denny's intentions of watching all of these old films that, you know, are very much racist in how they depict Black identity. And mm-hmm. she's really curious why... Denny is so interested in this project when she could be watching films that tell better stories of representation for Black identity at that time. But we really get a great introduction to their characters and their relationship and their work at this video store that, you know, proves to be very comical also, Mm -hmm. you know, and... Honestly, you know, when I was looking, when I was watching this film and I was watching all these like scenes at the video store, it just made me extremely nostalgic for like going to Blockbuster (laughs) and, you know, renting, you know, VHS tapes and, you know, before Netflix like took over, before dominating streaming services and getting movies sent home. It's like, you know, there's just something so just invigorating about going to a video store Mm -hmm. and picking out movies interacting with people who loved movies and yeah it just made me super nostalgic yeah no same it was also if i'm going to those video stores was also like finding your community in a way you know you you can also if you see someone cruising like the lgbt section it's like okay i haven't you know i have a friend here in the community um who likes queer films as well you know what I I also liked in this scene it's kind of establishing it does establish kind of both Cheryl and um T- Tamara's characters right they're how they view things and and I think mm-hmm. we see that very um vocal opinion that Tamara has throughout this film she's very adamant about focusing on the now and the voices now and supporting um black queer women now instead of um focusing on a past um where black women were suppressed by white voices where by white voices were heavily um dominating um their images right mm-hmm. and some so that's something we see a lot in Tamara's character but even though she even though she really comes off strong um and a little bit maybe controversial um that we'll see a little bit later on um she's really the humor to me in this film 
Mm-hmm. Um, Tamara's really the humors part that we see, um, which is where we move into the next scene because she sets up this blind date for um, Cheryl with this woman named Yvette. You know, we also learned that um, Tamara is also a black queer woman herself because she has a girlfriend, Stacy. And so we move on to this next scene in the karaoke um, scene and go fish lovers. You'll love the beginning of the scene because V.S. Brody is <laughs> up on stage singing Boogie Oogie Oogie. And it's just wonderful. And um, you also have Yvette going up singing Loving You um, really off key for Cheryl. Um, and Cheryl isn't interested in one bit. You know, this scene to me, I don't know what else it was establishing other than it was just being really humorous and showing that Cheryl, you know, um, her romance life is lackluster. And I just felt like it was a, you know, just like a little thing to keep the movie going. Yeah, no, um, I completely agree because I was just continuously laughing throughout the scene you know vs brody is you know hilarious and this like mm-hmm. very cameo scene just singing that song and then you know yeah cheryl she's not very lucky in love at the moment you know she's definitely focusing on really trying to become a filmmaker and she's you know had some issues with love in the past but you know it's just this is such a classically funny scene and that is definitely you know, the purpose of this. It's like, yeah, we're definitely establishing that this film, even though it's like following new queer cinema, it has transgressive elements in it. You know, it's something that's completely new. It's something completely different. Like there's such a huge romantic comedy aspect to it. It helped establish the watermelon woman as this, you know, this new breed of film coming out from new queer cinema that, Mm -hmm. you know, I felt like such a, you know, a really big change in the way that queer cinema went moving forward you know because of these comedic elements Mm -hmm. i also felt that like it was kind of showing us uh you know the life of the filmmaker in a way with this whole meta kind of style this movie is like you know a film within a film i felt like it was definitely giving us you know an insight to cheryl as a filmmaker and cheryl as a person in general you know like cheryl who goes to karaoke with her friends you know they do horrible karaoke singing looking for love you know we're i feel like we were really getting insight um to the filmmaker's life um which is Mm -hmm. emphasized even more in the following scenes where you know we have cheryl going to her mom's house and this is actually played by um donier's mom irene Dunier, and she's being interviewed for you know about like um if she knew anything about this watermelon woman yeah and personally i am obsessed with irene cheryl's mm-hmm. mom she was adorable and you know she just wanted to have cheryl come over even if she you know maybe not have known exactly what cheryl's talking about she's like i just want to see my daughter basically and mm-hmm. You know, we, we definitely get a lot of these documentary interviews throughout The Watermelon Woman, but I definitely love this because, you know, like like you were saying, it was very meta, you know, not only is this actually Dunye's mom, but, you know, we get such a peek inside, you know, not only share the character, but share the filmmaker by including her mom. It's like it's meta on so many levels. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the scene where she is looking for those um videos or there's those news clippings Uh and with all those boxes i i kind of got a flashback to my 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 mom and my house right now where we have boxes upon boxes of photographs and like i found it hilarious when um irene dunia was like it's in the box by 
um by the garage or something and it's like which one you know i i totally i totally resonate with that um but yeah again it's giving us an insight to the filmmaker and the filmmaker's life yeah yeah definitely and you know it it was just really great to be able to listen to her mom, you know, like tell these stories, tell these stories about, you know, what her life was like, you know, really understanding, you know, this perspective that we often don't get when learning about black identity and history, you know, and, Mm -hmm. you know, she's telling all these stories about the watermelon woman who she knew as Faye. And this is the first time we learn that the watermelon woman, you know, doesn't, go by the watermelon woman, you know, her name's Faye. And, you know, she used to sing at the clubs that, you know, her mom and her friends would go to. And, you know, we really get to see a look of this first look at Faye outside of who she was as the watermelon woman. And there's something that I always remember when she's telling her about the type of people that Faye hung around with. And she's like, yeah, she, she hung around with some, you know, weird people. There's some weird people there. And she's like, you would like them. And she was like, I, I bet I would. And, you know, we know <laughs> by weird that she, that she means queer, that she means like queer lesbian. Yeah. And I, I just love that, you know? Mm-hmm. It was, it was a very cute dynamic. Um, you know, there's also in this scene, uh, we have other document documentary interviews. We had that hilarious nod to Rosie Perez. And then we have a <laughs> inner title that says, sorry, Rosie. Um, and then, uh, Nick, you were saying they were, they were actually meaning Carmen Miranda, correct? Uh-huh. Yeah. That's who, <laughs> yeah. They were thinking Carmen Miranda, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, um, yeah, we get a lot of these documentary interviews that, um, I think that really kind of, um, emphasize how um, black women in film and in history have just kind of been erased or um, misinterpreted by different pop icons. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, that that's definitely a fair point, you know, because yeah, like I always, when I, I figured what they meant, what they meant, like Rosie Press, I felt like, mm-hmm. you know, maybe the opening scene to like, um, you know, do the right thing. But, Mm -hmm. you know, Carmen Miranda was definitely known as like singer, you know, and the fruit, the fruit was definitely like true, you know, but Mm -hmm. there is definitely this, this confusion that we do get where people are confusing people from, you know, underrepresented identities as, Mm -hmm. you know, possibly the same person there is, you know, even within underrepresented communities, you know, there's still, it's, it's prevalent throughout. Mm Mm-hmm. I think it's also, it's like, to me, maybe it was also, because, you know, with Yvette and, like, that whole conversation about how, like, that she was trying to audition for Spike Lee movies, and then we have, mm-hmm. you know, the Rosie Perez kind of nod here. I, I think it was also kind of talking about, I don't know if you saw it this way, but also how, like, you know, how Spike Lee is kind of, like, heralded as, like, the Black filmmaker, but then, you know, not other black filmmakers, especially black woman filmmakers and actors are getting the represent representation that they deserve as well. Yeah. You know, we, when we look at the intersections of identity, you know, we'll see that even within the same community that there's, you know, different identities who are given more prominence than others. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. I can, I can definitely see that. And I'm glad you brought that up because I definitely wasn't thinking about that, you know, where it's like Spike Lee is, you know, the prominent 
Black director of, mm-hmm. you know, the late 20th century through today. And, you know, we, we don't get that a lot with Black queer women, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's like, Danye is establishing herself. She's like, you know, we can't think of Black identity in film and think of only Spike Lee. You know, mm-hmm. we have so many multitudes of identity that, you know, should be celebrated, should be prominent. And, you know, it makes me think of the queer community and how, you know, the intersection of identity definitely establishes, you know, where you are in prominence within the community and what we've seen for, oh gosh, um, even before Stonewall, when Mm -hmm. Stonewall was like claimed by white cis gays, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like that has always been at the highest level of the totem pole, you know, Mm -hmm. and then when we get down to transgender women of color you know we see them at the bottom of this totem pole within the community mm-hmm. when you know that that should never be the case but we see that with different communities mm-hmm. and their identities and how they intersect mm-hmm. yeah and then even to to today we're still struggling to get representation for black trans women you know mm-hmm. you know and i feel like watermelon woman was the beginning of like really pushing and really asking for more representation and more voices, more voices for black queer women in general. Agreed. Completely Mm -hmm. agreed. And it does it in a very romantic comedic way because then we move on to the next scene at the video store. And this is the first time where, um, Cheryl gets to meet Diana played by Guinevere Turner, who is her love interest in the film and um you know it was just it was just such a funny romantic scene i know that this you know this meet cute was something that really resonated with you um Mm -hmm. but it it had so many great like comedic lines especially about film like there's this sissy space line where you know cheryl is stalking videos and um one of your turner's character diana she introduces herself and she's trying to figure out what to watch and Mm -hmm. what to pair together and she's looking at some horror films and you know cheryl's like you know offering up carrie and you know diana makes her queerness known by saying you know i don't like sissy space like i like girls with meat on their bones you know she's definitely telling cheryl you know i'm queer you know you can Mm -hmm. you can be interested in me and then um there's this funny line about repulsion because cheryl recommends repulsion and diana's like well i just moved into a new apartment i don't know if that's the right film for me and anyone who's seen repulsion would totally get that but Mm -hmm. you know it's it's such a cute scene it definitely as you know when we were talking about blockbuster and like looking for community in that video store this is what i kind of meant like this is kind of how you meet people this is how you kind of find people right um by connecting through our movies right and i thought that was a really cute scene but you know in this scene we also have uh the introduction of annie right you know, we mm-hmm. have uh, Cheryl back at the front desk and she's training this new girl, Annie, who Tamara immediately dislikes. And we will go further into her dislike of Annie later on. And we mm-hmm. have this kind of flirtatious scene between Cheryl and Diana again, where, you know, Diana's opening up her account and giving her number and her address um, to Annie, who's typing it in. But she's obviously kind of hinting at 
um, Cheryl, it's like, hey, this is where I live and this is my number. So, you know, if you ever want to, you know. And so it, it was also a very flirtatious scene. It was. And Annie, like, clocked it a mile yeah. away. It's like, well, you know, Cheryl says, she's like, and that is how you ring up a customer. And she's like, more like how a customer picks up an employee. If it was that easy, I should get a name tag. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's so cute and so fun. Yeah. And I think Tamara um, comes in, she comes in, it's like, if that dog collar's not working for you, then that, a name tag wouldn't do it either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so I think we go on to the next scene where we meet uh, Cheryl and Tamara meet Lee, which is, uh, I don't know if you want to say more on this part, because um, I know we were talking about last time about the friend of the family phrase yeah yeah okay so neither of us have ever heard this phrase and Mm -hmm. i don't know how because now i somehow have heard it more ever since watching this but you know um cheryl introduces via voiceover lee who was recommended by her mom and Mm -hmm. lee is a friend of the family as cheryl says and you know, we hear that echoed again when during another interview later, and you know, it's clear friend of the family means queer, you know, that they're a queer person, you know, probably specifically a black queer person. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely love that phrase. You know, I had no idea, but um I, I just thought, you know, talking about community and talking about like finding community, I really love the way that, you know, there's this, this hinting at queerness, and, you know, it's just this community, but, um, you know, moving on from that. So, you know, they interview Lee, who has this collection of what I call black excellence, you know, it's all mm-hmm. of this, all of these historical photographs and documents of Philadelphia at the time when there was a very prominent and rich life of Black identity in Philadelphia. And so he was able to really provide a lot of like alternative history to what we know of, um, or, or what we don't even know, because a lot of it isn't, isn't taught in you know our education system about you know different types of black experiences throughout you know the united states and so he's able to really provide this you know alternative history of realness that you know is able to provide a lot of information to cheryl and tamara and so you know we get our first clues to um, the watermelon woman faye and her relationship to the director of plantation memories martha page and mm-hmm. so, you know, we, we get a little hint at the relationship that it may have been more than just, you know, director and actor. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's very interesting to see how that relationship mirrors Cheryl's relationship to Diana. And, mm-hmm. you know, we'll talk about that later. Yeah. Well, what I also found really interesting in this scene as well, um, because you know, they're still on the search for the watermelon woman. And, you know, Cheryl asked Lee, do you know anything about the watermelon woman? And, you know, he's like, watermelon woman? No, um, I don't really know much about woman. Um, and, you know, Tamara makes a snide <laughs> comment, right? Um, it's like, of course you don't look at you. Um, but I think, again, this shows and going back to what we were saying earlier, this kind of shows, again, the privileging, even in when we're talking about 
you know, black excellence film where about the privileging of black actors, about black male actors and black um um black men who are directors and not about black actresses and black queer filmmakers, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, definitely. You know, we can definitely tie that comparison, especially when looking at you know, what I was saying earlier about intersection of identity and the totem mm-hmm. pole within communities. And um, yeah, he he doesn't know much about women. Obviously, mm-hmm. he knows more about men. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I think it's, it's very funny that he specifically makes that remark, you know, it's like, we know that he's a queer man. But mm-hmm. why would he, why would he have to specifically state that he doesn't know about this? about this, you know, obviously prominent Black actor and singer in mm-hmm. Philadelphia at the time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, we get this emphasis of Cheryl really wanting to h- highlight and make, you know, Black um, black woman um, in the film industry, in the um, entertainment industry more prominent. Um, when we get her, we get like kind of a B-roll scene of her just like um, changing photographs, right? of all these different um black um actors yeah she does like all of these women who paved the way for her mm-hmm. to tell her story you know we see hallie mcdaniel and butterfly mcqueen we mm-hmm. see all of these prominent black actresses who were relegated to these servant-like roles and you know it's it was obviously something where they've discussed that you know, this is what they had to do to have some prominence, you know, to be able to, you know, achieve their dreams, even if it wasn't what they wanted to specifically do. And so they sadly had to be stuck in those roles, but they paved the way so that Cheryl, you know, didn't have to do do that, that we have so many Black actors and actresses and trans Black actors and actresses that, you know, are able to go beyond a specific mold. You know, we see Mm -hmm. a lot of work that still needs to be done, but we do see that there was a paving of the way. And then it's because people said, no, I'm not going to be relegated to this. I'm going to tell my story the way that I want to tell my story Mm -hmm. and no one's going to get in the way. Mm -hmm. Agreed. And, you know, um, it's interesting because then we go on to what's, going to be her possible hindrance that does get in her way um we can argue this about diana right um Mm -hmm. we get into the scene where cheryl and diana are back at um diana's apartment this big fancy nice apartment you know and they're having wine together they're smoking a cigarette together it's a very sensual foreplay um that leads up to the sex scene right and this sex scene is um, really important because the thing that we talk about a lot in this season is the reclaiming of um, black queer desire and the you know about the queer body um, and I feel like this scene really you know exemplifies that and it, it's, it's shot in a very cinematic way you know and it doesn't feel like it's a male gazy type of um, scene because you know you tend to see when it comes to um, lesbian sex scenes you tend to see a very male gaze and how it's shot and how it's like you know you get close-ups and um you get like exaggerated noises 
right? And I felt like this scene was just done in such an artful way and a very authentic way too. Um, and it, it feels even more authentic because you know that um, Cheryl is a black queer filmmaker behind the screen and on the screen, you know? And so to me, it was really reclaiming of, you know, queer desire, reclaiming, you know, the female body again for, for the queer woman. Yeah, you know, I we've had so many discussions about this, and we've had discussions about this with J Two Ill, the film previously, and we'll we'll be discussing this throughout the second season. But you know, this reclamation of the queer female body through sex and the importance of having a queer woman behind the camera directing these scenes. You know, we last time when we were talking about Ackerman, you know, we were comparing the sex scenes to something that would be directed by a man. You know, even a queer man like Todd Haynes directing Carol or more egregious would be Blue is the Warmest Color. And, you know, we focus on who's behind the camera and what we're getting from the sex scene, who is the audience that the sex scene is for. And one thing that really helps me understand it is comparing them to films that aren't explicitly about queer women, you know, Mm -hmm. and um, one that I've discussed before is wild things. And there's this sex scene in a pool with Denise Richards character and Nev Campbell's character. And it's a male director and neither of the characters are established as queer. And I don't even think, you know, implicitly they're queer. You know, there's there's no reason why these two characters would be having a sex scene. But they have this explicit sex scene in a pool. And what I understood from it is that this is for a male audience. You know, this isn't for, for women, you know, to really get a glimpse at female sexuality and sex between queer women, but it was just something to titillate men, to titillate men. And so I compare that to other films directed by men that feature women having sex together, queer women. And I'm like, who's the audience for? You know, it's Mm -hmm. so egregious for a film like, you know, Blue is the Woman's Color because you know, this is about queer identity and two queer women in their relationship. And the sex scene felt so titillating, but for who? And it's not for the intended audience that the film should be for a queer female audience. And so that's what's so amazing about the films that we're discussing about the watermelon woman specifically the watermelon woman because we get to see a black queer filmmaker behind the camera who's directing herself and showing this black body authentically in a sexual situation and mm-hmm. i i just thought it was it, it was so groundbreaking you know mm-hmm. yeah i definitely agree you know again uh, that's why this is a landmark uh queer film a queer landmark new queer cinema film because it's displaying the black lesbian experience on the screen in an authentic way that's reclaiming um you know black queer voices actresses and artists onto the screen um Mm -hmm. you know and taking it away from you know the white cis het um authority exactly Mm -hmm. and then you know diverting from the romantic subplot again we go back into um this document um this documentary interview with the cultural critic camille paglia um 
And so um, Camille Pagley is an actual cultural critic um, playing herself in this scene, and she has dubbed herself as the anti-feminist feminist, and she has um, a lot of controversial views that, you know, listeners, you guys can go um, read up on it and get your own thoughts. But um, specifically in this scene, you know, she's playing um, this narcissistic white female ally who hides her racist beliefs through academia and theory. Um, she criticizes black scholars and theorists for overthinking the way black people are portrayed in media. And she relates the black mammy to her own Italian grandmother and calls it a noble position and not slavery. Um, yes. We even get her like talking about the racist image of a black boy holding a watermelon and, she, and she's saying, how is that racist? Isn't it? Shouldn't it um, instill pride and like good feelings, especially because the watermelons are like the color of the Italian flag. You know, <laughs> <laughs> we have this very um, kind of racist, not kind of this racist um, yeah. academic <laughs> here. You know, and yeah. I, to me, this was, again, showing how we have white academics who don't understand when they're criticizing these spaces. They don't understand what they're saying. They don't understand that community. They don't understand um, what black people go through. You know, mm -hmm. um, it's another it's another version of uh, who to me is like, who is writing and looking at the history of um black people and who's criticizing them you know yeah no i i completely agree and this directly follows her sex scene with diana and mm -hmm. those two those two scenes i are my favorite scenes of this film and i felt like they were the most important scenes to include in this film mm -hmm. and i felt like the scene with camille paglia that you know, it perfectly encapsulates what Dunya is trying to say when talking about the white cis hat authority on history. And, you know, it's her criticism of white scholars and how they gatekeep black history. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just, I was, I was rolling my eyes throughout this entire scene every time I see it. And, you know, this, this character, you know, of Camille, you know, she tries to reframe oppression and racism to better fit her worldview. She's going like mm -hmm. leaps and bounds, you know, going through all of these hoops, trying to, you know, reframe, you know, racist iconography into something that should actually be celebrated. And, you know, it's, it's what a lot of white historians did and still continue to do. And, you know, it, of course she can never imagine uh, an interracial relationship between, you know, Faye, the watermelon woman, and Martha Page, you know, mm -hmm. when when Cheryl brings that up to her, you know, she's just completely astounded. And, you know, an inter an interracial relationship at that time, but especially a lesbian interracial relationship, because it, it doesn't fit the history that she's helped perpetuate, what she's learned, mm -hmm. what she continues to teach, what's been given to so many people learning history of the United States. Mm -hmm. And then we see what the effect of that is, because there's a scene that is in between her interview with Camille, and it's her interviewing these three college, um, college women, and they have no idea of who the watermelon woman is, but they know who Martha Page is, they know that she was a director, and mm -hmm. um, what the effect is, is that 
they view black identity in cinema as solely exploitation because they're like, well, you know, if it's, if it's after exploitation, don't ask us, we haven't gotten to that yet. You know, it's like black identity in cinema is only relevant to the point of when black exploitation became prominent. And there's, you know, there's nothing that is discussed you know, prior to that in history. And, you know, that's, that's not in this bubble within this film, because we see that where, you know, Black film history and Black prominence in film is something that isn't necessarily discussed until Black exploitation and then what follows mm-hmm. after that. I was going to say, like, for me, when I was in film school, a lot of the times you, when you're taught in film history, again, also, um, all my film history classes, even in grad school, were taught by white cis men. You know, and yeah. it's not—it's not saying that you can't teach these subjects, but it's just—it's kind of a criticism, um, in academia, um, in general about who's teaching film history and who's writing film history. You know, and this is, you know, the problem why we're not getting so much, you know, focus on black queer filmmakers, um, in history. And you know, that's why with those students, when they, I kind of understood when they were saying, if you don't. If it's before black exploitation, we don't really know because that's how it's taught in film school. You know, that's how film history yeah. is taught in film school. And, you know, and you have to take a specific class about um, black queer filmmakers sometimes. You know, again, it's we should be having black queer people who are teaching film history as well. And, you know, film history also needs a rewriting where, it, you know, it's more focused on the the pioneers, the um black women who are pioneers in um film history and women in general who were pioneers in film history and queer women who are pioneers in film history you know um because all the time when you talk about film history we're just talking about um citizen kane you know we're we're talking about orson wells we're talking about godard we're talking about jean renoir Mm -hmm. and you know all these european white filmmakers and you know they're great filmmakers i love their films i'm not i'm not attacking them i'm just saying that you know film history really needs um a rewrite and a different way of teaching it and we should be having black queer we should be having queer people of color teaching it and you know and i feel like that's the reason why we were having why we that's the heart to me of the watermelon woman and that scene with camille paglia Mm -hmm. completely agree the next scene in the dinner scene with tamara stacy diana cheryl we get more of this conversation about um white allies um who are kind of trying to occupy the black space yes i know these back-to-back scenes have so much relevance and Mm -hmm. you know they're so important in this film it's like we just get hit back and forth (laughs) yeah with all of these scenes but um no yeah there's um we go to uh, like a few scenes later we get to this dinner scene between you know Cheryl and Diana who are having dinner with Tamara and Stacy and you know they're talking about their experiences you know where they grew up and you know about Cheryl's project and Tamara still doesn't you know really comprehend the project there was you know this scene earlier when they went to the library trying to get information mm-hmm. and you know Cheryl's running into all these issues trying to get help from you know the the resource desk at the library because she can't find anything on the watermelon woman and you know Tamara you know doesn't still does like she didn't understand the project at that point and um you know there's like this friction between you know her living her life and helping Cheryl but you know we see that 
continued with this dinner scene between them. And, you know, there was a scene right before this where they were doing this project for um, this Black women's community event called Sister Sound. And, you know, we can tell that there was, that there's still this tension with Tamara and people like Annie, people like Diana. And, you know, she just feels like the space is being invaded. That's what I felt like. And we Mm -hmm. really see that in this dinner scene as well, when talking about Cheryl's project and Diana helping her by being able to get an interview with Martha Page's younger sister. Mm -hmm. In the next scene, uh, we get the scene where Tamara and Cheryl kind of come head to head um, and they're fighting about um, Tamara's attitude towards Diana and Annie, right? And we have this conversation where I think uh, Cheryl says, you know, I, I can still be in love with a white woman and still be a black woman. And to me, this really resonated with the themes of young soul rebels um mm-hmm. i really thought about that scene in young soul rebels with uh kaz's interaction with his brother um at the garage right about um about kind of this attitude about um this gatekeeping attitude about questioning my identity just because i'm with a white person yeah. You know, we, we see Young Soul Rebels and Isaac Trillian, you know, mm-hmm. we definitely see that influence in this film. Isaac Trillian is credited at the end of the film with a special thanks. There's a, there's a, um, a film poster of one of um, Isaac Trillian's films mm-hmm. in that scene just prior where they're having dinner. So, yeah, you know, even with the, the sex scene between her and Diana, it definitely made me think of the sex scene between Kaz and Billy and mm-hmm. their sex scene in Young Soul Rebels. But yeah, we, we have this really great conversation in here. And there are two sides that definitely deserve to, you know, have this argument, this type of this discussion, because there's the scene of gatekeeping within a community of who you're allowed to love. Does mm-hmm. that change your identity? And Tamara is positing that, you know, how why would you want to date someone who's not inside your community? It changes mm-hmm. who you are. And Tamara makes the argument that Cheryl changes when she's involved with someone like Diana and Cheryl's what you were saying is like, no, you know, that doesn't change who I am. You know, why should I not be allowed to you know, love who I love? Mm-hmm. And, you know, throughout Demi's work, we definitely see these depictions and conversations when it comes to relationships of a black woman and a white woman in a relationship you know we see that in mm-hmm. her short vanilla sex we see that in Janine we see that in Alice where her character mm-hmm. is involved with another white woman mm-hmm. and this is a lot of Denny's experience and so she really is having a, she is discussing the criticism of gatekeeping within a community of mm-hmm. you know does my identity change if I'm involved with someone who is not a part of my community and she's trying to say no that doesn't change who i am there shouldn't be anything to hold me back Mm -hmm. from loving who i am but you know then to tamara's point we have this issue of people who feel that they're allowed into a space when they're invading a space that they're not invited to because of their identity there are Mm -hmm. spaces for people because of of not being allowed in spaces for their entire existence where they have Mm -hmm. to create their own spaces. And so we have this issue 
where Tamara feels like Diana is invading this black space that is Cheryl's project and this project that is solely about a black woman. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we see that echoed towards the end of the film and this discussion of, you know, getting back on track and focusing on the black subject of what this project was really about. And mm-hmm. it's, it's a great scene. So I can't wait till we get to the end to yeah. discuss it, but you know, those are, those mm-hmm. are the two arguments we're seeing here. Mm-hmm, definitely. And you know, the argument for spaces again, you know, Tamara is also like, kind of like she was annoyed in a way that uh, Diana was able to, uh, get this interview for Cheryl because again it's like showing her again it, yeah she was inserting herself in a black queer project but it's also kind of like flexing her privilege you know in a way and yeah. we see this kind of like a Tamara kind of like says this again where Annie uh, tells Cheryl about this place where she got yeah, information called the clip right in New York and then Tamara was like wow it must have been so easy for you to just go in there. Tamara makes the point where well there's probably not anything about black lesbians mm-hmm. at this place you know it's going to just be about white women which she's not wrong right um yeah <laughs> she's not wrong about how, you know how even in lgbt history it's still privileging a white cis um history a white cis perspective um telling the stories about white queer cis um people Right. And, you know, we see that when they get to CLIT, which is which stands for the Center for Lesbian um, Info and Technology. Again, I love it. I wish there was a place called CLIT around me. Um, I would be you visiting it. it. To the clit. Exactly. We, I would be visiting it every day. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so we get into the scene. Um, the scene, again, it's a really important scene because it's a really um, kind of discussing about again who's handling our history right who who gets to keep it who gets to gatekeep it who gets to safeguard it um etc right and you know we see um this the clit archivist she comes in she's just dumps a bunch of um files really important files and delicate documents um onto the table uh, kind of showing that she doesn't really care about um this history she um if it's not her history you know and when she brings that box on, I think it was on Martha Page or I, it was on specifically on Martha Page and uh, Faye Richards, the watermelon woman. Uh, she brings it to her and she's about to dump it again. And then you have Cheryl's like, no, no, please, I can I can handle this. <laughs> right. I, it's like, you know, it was kind of showing this um, disregard for their history in a way. And Cheryl was like, let me take it back into my hand and like actually um, care for it. Like it's meant to be like it should be. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this whole scene, we also have other discussions where, for instance, the archivist, she goes like, this is a safe space, please. Um, we're all sisters here, but please make sure this is a safe space. And it's like, who is it really a safe space for? You know, it's obviously yeah. it's not it's not a safe place for um, black queer women, people of color um, like Cheryl. You know, it was only a space for cis white uh, queer woman, you know exactly exactly yes respect your sisters but which sisters right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you know there's lines like you know first of all you know the 
the actress Cher Shulman, who plays this clit archive, and she's hilarious. Like she, mm-hmm. you know, um, we were watching the documentary Dykes Came Reaction, and she was giving a, a short oral history on the watermelon woman and her role in the scene. And you know, we find out that a lot of it was improv, and it was it was really really funny. It was a really mm-hmm. funny scene. But you know, there there were some lines that you know are very obvious. You know, to your point, you know, when she's talking about the collection and Cheryl inquires, you know, I heard that you have a black collection, but it's separate. And she's like, it's very separate. And I'm like, that's, that's pretty coded, um, Mm -hmm. very explicit what, what she's meaning there. But then, you know, and then she's talking about, you know, some of like the history behind some of the photographs and, you know, she's using these terminologies like yard birds and string. And she's talking about how, you know, she could really go for like an, like a glass of ice cold, I like iced tea and you know it, it reminded me about how a lot of people a lot of white people talk to other black people you know trying to relate to them and it just comes across as just completely tone deaf and that mm-hmm. that's what it reminded me that's what this whole scene reminded me it was just like very tone deaf and you know, it was still funny though, because of, you know, Cheryl's reaction to it. It's she's like, she's like, is this serious? Like, are we serious here? Mm-hmm. You know, like what's, what's going on here? But, um, you know, I thought it was just hilarious just the way that she reacted to it and, you know, her commentary on these types of spaces that are supposed to be for everyone when mm-hmm. in actuality, even if they, you know, idealistically want to be, you know, there's something that holds them back from actually being able to provide a safe space to all people. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we do get some information from Clit and, you know, she's able to find some information on one of Faye Richards, the watermelon woman, one of her lovers mm-hmm. who is named June. And so, you know, she sees an inscription on the back of one of these photographs. And so she's able to get a lot of great information Um and it really leads us to, you know, where we get to this final point in the film, you know, finding out that, you know, Faye Richards, the watermelon woman, she is not only tied to Martha Page and, you know, this this horrible stage name that she had to take on, but that she mm-hmm. had a history, she had a life and romance that was after that, that was really more authentic to who she was as a person and, you know, really reclaiming her black identity from, you know, this white gaze and old Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was this really funny scene after this where um, Cheryl gets more information about Martha Page Mm -hmm. from this book called Hollywood Lesbians. And she makes this joke, um, you know, about, the man who wrote it and she's like i wonder if he's a lesbian like yeah <laughs> obviously not but it just goes in theme with everything that we've discussing that's been you know discussed throughout this film it's it's funny mm-hmm. yeah and then you know um we see again i think we see a mirror or a mirror in a way how cheryl is seeing Faye richards and her relationship with uh diana um because you know with uh because we find out that Faye Richards also had a romantic relationship with Paige, right? And so, like, Cheryl has this whole scene where she says, you know, we have two things in common, Faye. You know, we're both black women and we're both lesbians. Um, and I think it was, like, I think that's when it becomes really more personal to Cheryl. Um, because mm-hmm. now it's, like, now she's not just telling a story about a black actress, but now she's telling a story about a black queer actress, 
right? And mm-hmm. and I feel like we feel her anger in the interview that we will see with uh, Paige Fletcher, Martha's younger sister that Diana orchestrated the interview with, right? And we have mm-hmm. um, Paige Fletcher who's very, she's denying all of uh, her sister's, Martha Page's queer past. She's denying that her sister was queer. And, you know, we also have this woman who's also racist who also has um, a black housekeeper, right? And you really see, I think, Cheryl being uh, really angry and not holding back on kind of putting this woman in her place who's trying to, you know, trying to rewrite the history um, for to fit into her white racist view. Right. And then we also see mm-hmm. this is where we're seeing the rift between um, Cheryl and Diana, because throughout this whole entire scene, Diana just sits there quietly. Mm -hmm. yeah she's she's visibly uncomfortable you know it's Mm -hmm. like she wants to you know try and like temper cheryl like hold her hand out like telling cheryl to stop and Mm -hmm. you know it's you know it it definitely has this conversation on white allyship and you know what's really performative what you know actually helps you know with being an ally and creating change versus doing something that you know makes you look better in your own eyes you know what appears to be helpful when it really isn't and that's exactly what diana is in the scene she's staying silent she's not you know backing up cheryl for facts that she knows true she just feels uncomfortable in the situation because she identifies more with this older white woman than she does with this woman who she supposedly loves. Mm. But, you know, because of that, we really see a rift in her relationship with Diana because Diana really doesn't support her. She's not really going to help her with this project. And we really see that Diana acts in a way like Martha Page did in her relationship with Faye. And we really see that mirror in their relationships and knowing Faye's trajectory trajectory in her life and what really allowed her to come into her own be happy embrace who she was authentically you know Cheryl knows what she has to do because of that yeah um and again it's like I felt like in this scene it was kind of also showing to Diana where it's like you know you think you can occupy the space you think you're part of this community when an actual in actuality, you're really not because you still have these privileges and it shows that you don't understand what we, what, what people of color, what black queer women continually have to face, continually have to argue against, you know, you don't understand that experience because you're white, you know? So I think, you know, also being part of a, being an ally to a black queer woman, to a person of color is understanding that you don't occupy those spaces. You don't, uh, you're not part of that community, you know, um, and to support them, you should be vocal um, and, you know, not silent, like how Diana exactly. was in that scene. Um, exactly. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we so we we kind of get that romantic subplot kind of put away now and we focus back onto Cheryl's research on Faye Richards and now on Faye Richards relationship with also June Walker um, June Walker, who was um, Faye Richards' lover for, I think, about 20 years, as I think was stated in the film. And, you know, we have this phone call. Cheryl has this phone call with June Walker. And, you know, June Walker is like, yeah, bring over um, dinner and we can have a talk. And when Cheryl gets there, she finds out um, from June Walker's neighbor that June had heart palpitations and was rushed off to the hospital. Um, but, it, but she left a note for Cheryl. 
And in that note, we have kind of June expressing her frustration at Cheryl for mentioning um for mentioning Martha Page's name in relationship to Faye Richards and kind of making this point that we've been hearing a lot about how can you bring up that name? How why are you talking about a white woman in a story about a black woman, you know, a black queer woman? Why are you again centering this on this white woman when she has no part in who Faye Richards was and who her life was, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it was really a wake-up call for her. It was like her realizing, why did I go and speak with Martha Page's younger sister? How does that help me with learning more about Mm -hmm. this woman who was known as the Water Mom woman? It was a huge wake-up call for her. And, you know, it was a really great uplifting scene. We see her, you know, walking back from um, June's apartment, and she's really contemplating, you know, what you know, really trying to figure out and go back to why she started this project. Mm-hmm. And there's this street performer, um, Toshi Reagan, and she's performing the song Fascination. And it's, you know, playing over with the monologue of what June is, what her letter is to Cheryl. It was very revelatory to me too. You know, it was just like, you know, this is, how you need to tell your story. This mm-hmm. is the way to do it. And it was really uplifting because we know that Cheryl is going to do the right thing and she's going to refocus her project to make it authentic to who she is as mm-hmm. a black queer woman, but also to Faye Richards, who is also a black queer woman. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we get our last shot, um, the last scene of the film where um, Cheryl is you know, talking to the camera about her journey so far in this research. But, you know, I think what was what was important to note is that she, I think what she says is that, um, you know, she was kind of upset that she didn't get to talk to June Walker one-on-one because she was saying Faye Richard me- meant a lot to you. I understand that, but Faye Richard also means a lot to me. And, you know, how they, how she means to us are kind of different. You know, again, kind of maybe relating to this different of generation um of viewpoints right and i also think it was kind of like because i think what cheryl was also saying was that how martha page you know she was important in Faye Richards, but like you're right um i shouldn't be focusing on martha page but i also shouldn't be kind of erasing that history because it's also erasing um that queer history that Faye Richards had on and off screen as an actress, right? So it's like, it's kind of like, I felt it was Cheryl trying to say, you know, that needs to be part of the story because that's also part of film history. That's part of black queer film history that I can't take away Mm -hmm. either because that's who I am. I'm a black queer woman who also had relationship with white women, you know? And so we get this kind of, to me, how I saw it, we get this kind of perspective that Cheryl was trying to take from her journey so far in search for the watermelon woman in search for Faye Richards. Right. And, and, you know, we also get, it's a really difference from the beginning scene um, when she's talking to the camera and the ending scene where she's talking to camera. Cause in the beginning, Cheryl is like, I'm a filmmaker. Well, not really. I'm not really a filmmaker. I work in a video store versus at the ending. She's confidently saying I'm a filmmaker and, you know, I'm a black lesbian filmmaker who's just beginning. And I'm going to be saying a lot more and doing a lot more from now on. And I think that was such a powerful way to end off that film and end off her segment. Yeah. It was, it it really was, it was very hopeful and 
you know, very self-assured, you know, through this process, she was really able to come into her identity and realize who is there to, you know, really help her with this project, you know, just because, you know, she falls in love with someone who is not black, you know, that doesn't change who she is. She can still have those relationships, but those people have to be there to support her and understand her and understand what she's trying to do. Mm-hmm. And it's great knowing that she's gone from this place of not really knowing, like she knows who she is, but she doesn't really know exactly what that means to an external world. And she really understands that by the end of the, she understands her place in this world, what she can do to change it and what she can do for other people and what other people can do for her. You know, we, we just get this wonderful ending shot of her, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's great. It really helps pave the way, you know, we see that her journey is something that we see as a way to pave the way for people who come after her, who make waves and increasing visibility and representation in a positive way. The end title card of this film, um, as you mentioned earlier, says sometimes you have to make your own history. Um, The watermelon woman is fiction. And I think that's really important to know because, you know, um, Cheryl Dunye did make history, just like how in the film, Faye Richards paved the way um, for Cheryl in Watermelon Woman to be a lesbian filmmaker, to be a black lesbian filmmaker, Cheryl Dunye in real life kind of paved the way for black queer women to be filmmakers, to be on the screen and um, as actors, producers, directors, etc. You know, um, that's why Watermelon Woman is so important, you know, because of what is what it has done for film history, what it has done for film in general and how it inspired um you know, young black queer women to go out and pursue their dreams as filmmakers, as artists, you know, and Watermelon Woman and Dunye as a filmmaker, as a black queer filmmaker, really paved the way um, for how we see queer cinema today, in my opinion, and really shed light on the black lesbian experience that we, you know, I still don't think we see a lot today. But like, you know, I think Dunye paved the way for like films like um, Pariah, um, Dairy's uh, feature film and hopefully there's a lot more to come where we see black lesbians on the screen um, being reclaimed from a white cis heterosexual even a white cis um, homosexual um, space that Hollywood tends to have Thank you for tuning in to our discussion on Cheryl Dunney's The Watermelon Woman, a film that helped progress our representation of Black queer women in film. It was revolutionary for its commentary on the white cishet control of history, as well as really reclaiming the Black female lesbian body in film. So stay tuned next time for our next episode on Jamie Babbitt's But I'm a Cheerleader. Thank you.